From John 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. While Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail the King of Jews, and they slapped him on the face. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There, were, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. There's a very strange juxtaposition of images in that text that Caitlin has just read for us. You have, on the one hand, the theme of the kingship of Jesus. And today is Palm Sunday. This is the day in which Christians traditionally have celebrated the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. When this itinerant rabbi from the north was welcomed as a prophet into the, the capital city of Israel. And there were uh, coronation overtones to that whole event. They talked of the coming of the king into Jerusalem. And yet at the same time and throughout that week, and especially obviously on Thursday night and Good Friday, there was the reality of the death of Jesus, his suffering. And yet even there you see, you hear the language of kingship. And it's, it's also very strange to see those things together. And on this day, for us, we have those things together because it is, in one hand, Palm Sunday, and it is, uh, on the other hand, our celebration of communion, where we remember the fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross and gave his life for us. And we do those things on the same day. We honor his kingship, and we celebrate and are thankful for his sacrifice for us, that Jesus is our Savior and Jesus is our King. 
The Bible begins with the declaration that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so everything that exists, galaxies, neutrons, mountains, clouds, rabbits, daffodils, oceans, people, it all exists because God has brought it into being. He is the creator and therefore he is the Lord of all that is. And his lordship implies two things. It implies power, that is he can rule. He has the ability to govern the universe because he made it all. And his lordship implies authority. That is, he has the right to rule. The universe and everything in it belongs to him. And so God, the creator, is Lord with power and authority. And that sounds threatening to us until we realize that he is good. God created mankind to be the recipients of his love and to love him in return. And creation reveals a God who appreciates beauty, who values order, but also creativity and freedom, who invented pleasure and joy, who inspires awe and wonder, who instilled values like nurture in animals and in us. And God has not just the soft qualities of goodness, but also its hard qualities like justice and concern for right and wrong and loving discipline. And God culminated his creative activity by creating man and woman. And Adam and Eve were unique in all creation. God formed man, Adam, and breathed into him the spirit of life. That is, something came from God and entered into Adam. And Adam became not just then a physical living being, but also a spiritual being. With a touch of the divine in him somehow. And from Adam, God formed Eve, so that they are of the same substance, the same stuff. And God said of Adam and Eve that they were made in God's own image. Not that they were little gods, but they had an affinity with God that nothing else in all creation did. They shared some of God's attributes, like reason and emotion and will, creativity, love of beauty, sense of justice and rightness, and so on. And they also had the ability to know God relationally and intimately, to love him and to enjoy him, and to receive and appreciate his love for them. But love is choice, and God provided them with an opportunity to choose to love him. He gave them complete freedom in the Garden of Eden, but set apart one tree and said, you may eat from any tree in the garden except this one. But then Adam and Eve, we call it, they fell. They chose to mistrust God and to trust the serpent who tempted them. And so they disobeyed God by eating that forbidden fruit. And this mistrust of God's word and this, the sin that, that grew out of that mistrust, the disobedience that grew out of that mistrust, we call that sin. And the sin had two effects. First, it ruptured their relationship with God. It separated them from him. There was a wall between them, a wall that they themselves had erected. But also, it put them in a position of guilt. They had committed an offense against the Lord of the universe, and they stood guilty before him. Sin, by its very nature, infects. 
And what we see in the history of Adam and Eve and in their descendants bears witness to this cancerous spread of sin. Excuse me. Sin, once rooted, takes over to the point where no person, no facet of human life and human nature remains untainted. And so the greatest philanthropist might have issues with pride. The closest loving relationships sometimes show streaks of anger and selfishness. And a certain level of dishonesty and gossip and lust or temper shows up in all of us more regularly than we would care to admit. And we see this in the biblical story, this, this downward spiral of Adam and Eve's descendants, so that by the time of Noah, humanity, was so, uh, humanity as a whole embraced sin and lived so thoroughly in opposition to God and in opposition to his goodness that the Bible says that every inclination of the thought of his heart was evil all the time or continually. And even though God judged mankind with a great flood and started over with Noah, sin, like cancer, has a way of coming back. Noah gets drunk, his son mocks him, and before long, the whole cycle has begun again. Humanity to a man is gripped by sin, willingly enslaved to it, guilty in it, and cut off from God because of it. Centuries after Noah... After humanity's attempts to live without God had been conclusively demonstrated to be hopeless and destructive, God created a nation, descendants of a man, Abraham. And this nation, Israel, became God's personal community, as it were. They were to be the means by which God would effect a change in the sinful condition of the world. And through Moses, their leader, God gave to Israel his law. Not just his laws or rules, but his law, his laying on the line how things really are. Like the law of gravity. If you jump off a building, you're not punished by falling to the ground. But if you jump, you fall. That is the law. And so it is with God's law. Integrity, worship of God, honor, care toward other people are just plain right. Murder and envy and ignoring God are a violation of the order of things. And God's law is not something outside of himself that he created. It's the expression of his own person and his own character. One writer has said that God is allergic to sin. It's not like he could tolerate it but chooses not to, but to punish it instead. It's not like that. No, sin is, is repulsive to God's very nature. And therefore, it's repulsive to the very order of things as God created. God abhors sin like nature abhors a vacuum. And to Israel, God says via his law, this is what it looks like for you to be what I created you to be. Worship only me. Honor your parents. Set aside a Sabbath day for rest and for worship. Don't lust or steal or kill or lie or covet. Okay, the Ten Commandments. And Jesus later, by the way, said, even if you don't act these things out, the very desire in your heart to do some of these things violates God's perfection. And Israel looked at this law, looked at these commandments, and said enthusiastically, okay, we promise, we can do that. 
And the rest of the Old Testament systematically relates their rebellion against the promise. So it's not just the pagans who live sinfully. And even when God steps in and reveals himself again, outlines exactly how to live rightly, establishes a a relationship with a community that he calls God's chosen people, even then they can't do it. Such is the power of sin. It enslaves entirely. It makes people heap guilt on themselves. It builds higher and thicker this dividing wall between us and God. And all people have sinned. Some more than others, some big sins, some smaller sins, but those are artificial categories. No matter at what point or how many times you break the stick, the stick is broken. And even a single sin means that God's character has been violated. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible reminds us. We've all turned away from God. Sin has become our default position And even when something inside us desires us to be a good person, we find that we're always facing some form of selfishness or anger. They're just present in us, no matter how much we wish they were not. They are. And therefore, we are guilty before a perfect God, and we're separated from him whom we were created to know. And we feel that separation in our souls just as keenly as our bodies would feel the lack of air or water. But we don't necessarily recognize it for what it is. We think there's a hunger in us for success or for relationship with someone or for happiness, however we define it. But it's a deep need in us for God. And God sent his son to earth. Jesus, eternal, divine, We call that event the incarnation, which means that in Christ, divinity, deity, took on flesh, became a real human being. He was tempted in every way, like us, but he alone, of all who ever lived, he alone always chose God's values over his own temptations, and he lived sinlessly. He lived the life that we were created to live, but could not. And he died as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. His sinless life he gave for sinful man. His life of infinite worth he gave as payment for the infinite debt of our sins. He took our guilt upon himself and bore the punishment that we deserved. The Bible says that the wages, the consequence, the the appropriate reward for sin is death. And yet Jesus, who was sinless, was put to death. As he hung on the cross bearing our sin, God turned away. And Jesus experienced the alienation from God that sin brings. The Bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. It also says that he was wounded for our sins. And the punishment that brings us peace was upon us him. Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins, died for your sins and for my sins. In the Old Testament, God had made provision for his people for dealing with sin. Sacrifices were made 
as a way of reminding the people of God that sins against God were not a trifling matter, but were such a a heinous violation of God's holiness that death was the only appropriate consequence. And if the idea of blood sacrifice seems harsh or barbaric to us, that's because it is. But maybe it says less about the severity of God than it does about the monstrosity of our own sin. But with the sacrifice, God also showed himself gracious, allowing that a substitute sacrifice was acceptable to him. The death of the innocent animal for the sins of the guilty person. And there were various forms of sacrifice that that gave shades of meaning to this. And in the weeks before today, we have considered some of these. In the Passover, it was the idea of God's judgment of sin that was highlighted. In our day, we think that God's judging sin becomes somehow a slight on his character, as though straight forgiveness would be more in keeping with his goodness. And yet, we'd never think that a judge who just releases criminals without paying their debt to society is either just or good. And when we ourselves are wrong, we know that we crave justice. We crave retribution. Well, God is just. And at the first Passover, when God exercised judgment against both Israel and Egypt, he showed that a sacrifice could be made so that people could be saved from God's judgment. And the life of the innocent animal could be given in place of the firstborn son of the family. There was, there was a death for sin, but it was not the death of the sinner. In the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, it was the idea of relational separation from God that was addressed. In the blood of the covenant, the sacrifice made provision for God to bind the people to himself in relationship so that they could be his people and he could be their God. And the barrier that kept them apart was suspended and they could come together. And then on the Day of Atonement, the annual High Holy Day of Israel, the sacrifice painted a picture of the cleansing from sin that needed to take place. Sin pollutes our very heart, our very character, our very nature. And people, I, you, need to be deep cleaned. And the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement symbolically covered the stain of sin. And God considered the people clean before him on the basis of that sacrifice. But these, the Passover, the Covenant, the Day of Atonement, these were, of course, just merely pictures. They were shadows. The blood, the death of a goat or a lamb has no real effect on dealing with the reality of sin. But God was putting a framework in place in such a way that when the great sacrifice was made with the death of Jesus that would have real effect, real power, we would understand what was going on and what it meant. And we are used, I think, to thinking about Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. Every year on Good Friday, and this week we'll do that, we'll remember it, we'll celebrate it. Every month here in our service, we remember and celebrate in the observance of the Lord's Supper that Jesus died for us. But I'm not sure that we, myself included, give very much conscious thought 
not to what the crucifixion means for us, but what it meant for Jesus. What it meant for him to give his life on the cross. It was about eight years ago, I think, that the movie The Passion of the Christ was showing in theaters. And the movie portrayed the last 12 hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And if you've seen the movie, you know how violent it was. How it graphically showed the multiple beatings that Jesus experienced. The flogging of his flesh, the brutality of his crucifixion. And in making the movie so horrific... Director Mel Gibson was simply trying to be accurate in reflecting the gospel accounts. And the Pope at that time said of this movie, it is as it was. And we can hardly imagine the unspeakable suffering that crucifixion meant for a person. It was considered so horrible a death that it was reserved for slaves and for the worst of criminals and for enemies of the state. No Roman citizen could be crucified. It was against the law. And we take our word excruciating from the word crucifixion to describe the level of pain that crucifixion caused. And Jesus experienced that after he had been beaten several times. But Jesus' suffering is even more astonishing or shocking when we see it against the backdrop of what had happened to him just five days before in the very same city. A multitude of fans on that Sunday had ushered him into Jerusalem, singing, shouting his praises, declaring his royalty, declaring that he was, in fact, sent from God himself. And it was, for all intents and purposes, kind of a a public coronation. And that event is what we now know as the triumphal entry. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of what the prophet Zechariah had written, Rejoice and shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. But within days, public opinion would turn against him and he would be brutally executed and mocked as king of the Jews. And now today, Palm Sunday, is a day in which we Honor Christ as king. On this day, we declare that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and king. Not just of the Jews 2,000 years ago, but that he reigns today over heaven and earth as king of kings and Lord of lords. And I proclaim to you today that Jesus is king. His lordship is eternal, it is absolute, and you and I live within the realm over which Jesus is king. His kingship can be traced throughout Scripture, this theme of his kingship. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of a kingly figure from the line of David. He'd be king of Israel, but more than that, he would reign as the very Son of God over all of the nations of the world forever. Psalm 2, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said, you are my son, today I have become your father. Micah 5, 2 and 4. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 
and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Daniel chapter 7, he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language will worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And when Jesus came, even beginning at his birth, Gabriel said to Mary concerning Jesus, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And the wise men came looking for the one who had been born king of the Jews. In his life, he exercised lordship and authority over disease and over nature and over demons. People called him the son of David, which was a royal name for the Messiah. After one of his miracles, Jesus had to slip away because he caught wind of the fact that the crowd was about to make him king by force. At his triumphal entry, again, all the tones of coronation and kingship. And that was not lost, at, uh, lost on his enemies. And so at his trial, they brought him to Pilate on the charge of treason. He claims to be a king, they said. He was mocked for his kingship. He was given a crown of thorns to wear, a sign fastened to the cross, calling him the king of the Jews. Then on the third day, by the mighty power of God, he was raised to life, later ascended into heaven. He's been exalted, that is, lifted up, placed above all things. Colossians 1 tells us that God has put all things under Jesus' feet. Philippians 2, that he's been exalted to the highest place and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his lordship. Book of Revelation, that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 19 gives him the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Christ. This is a picture of Jesus from the Old Testament all the way through to the very end. This is the one whom we call Savior and Friend. This is the one whom we love and we worship. He is King of all. His Lordship is absolute. It is eternal. And the first creedal statement of the the early church, their slogan almost, was the simple affirmation, Jesus is Lord. It was a confession of his rule. And we in our day, we've modified modified that statement a bit. We're more prone to say Jesus is my Lord. When I say Jesus is my Lord, I'm saying something about where I stand in relationship to Jesus. But when I say Jesus is Lord, I'm making a statement that's cosmic in its scope. I'm saying something about where the universe and you stand in relation to Jesus. And that is the Christian claim. Christianity declares that whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you affirm it and accept it or not, nevertheless, Jesus is your king. And one day every tongue will confess it and every knee will bow before him. And it's at his resurrection on the third day that his kingship is confirmed to us by God the Father himself. Romans chapter 1 says that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus in his life, 
spoken and acted as if he were himself divine, raising the dead, calming storms. If people worshipped him, he accepted it. He claimed the ability and the authority to forgive sin. He claimed to have existed before Abraham. He said he would one day come in glory and judge the whole earth. That he would determine the eternal destiny of all people. He took the Old Testament divine name of God, I am, and applied it to himself. And if Jesus had been crucified and that had been the end of it, it would have been impossible to know whether or not to take him seriously. But God raised Jesus from the dead, and by so doing, God put his stamp of affirmation on Jesus, vindicating him. And by his resurrection from the dead, we know that what Jesus said was right. And that his claims and his demonstrations of divine power were the real thing. So it's by his resurrection that we know that Jesus is the Son of God. And therefore, that we, we know that his death on the cross was sufficient to affect our forgiveness. We know that it's by the blood of Jesus, by his death, that we are saved from God's judgment of our sin. For Jesus bore that judgment on our behalf. And sin is punished, for God is just. But in Jesus, if we accept it, the punishment for our sin is poured out not on us, but on Jesus. And it's by the blood of Jesus that we are bound into a relationship with God, the only possible, deeply satisfying life. The door is open because of Jesus. The barrier removed because of Jesus. It's by the blood of Jesus that God considers us or relates to us as if we were clean from sin, unstained. Not that we don't sin anymore. Anyone who knows any Christian for more than a day knows that we still sin. But God sees the perfect purity of Jesus and relates to us on that basis, not on the basis of our sin. And Jesus himself is the guarantee that in eternity, our, our cleansing, which God is beginning and slowly, gradually working in us, will be absolute and brought to completion. And that's why Jesus' death is such infinitely good news for us. By his sinless life and by his identity as a divine son of God, his death was sufficient to erase the infinite debt of our sin. His life of infinite